Welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. Brought to you by the Network and Edge Solutions Group. Hello and welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. Brought to you by the Intel Network and Edge Solutions Group. In this episode, we're going to explore the topic of remote patient monitoring. I'm your host, Alex Flores, Head of Global Health Solutions at Intel Corporation. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jennifer Goldsack, CEO of the Digital Medicine Society. Welcome, Jennifer. Before we jump into the questions, I'd like for you to take a few minutes and introduce yourself. Fantastic. Alex, thank you so much for hosting and delighted to be here. My name is Jen Goldsack. I'm the CEO of the Digital Medicine Society, or DIME. DIME is a global nonprofit dedicated to advancing the ethical, effective, equitable, and safe use of digital technology to redefine healthcare and optimize lives. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm really looking forward to this insightful conversation with you. For those of you that are listening that aren't familiar with remote patient monitoring, it refers to a method of healthcare delivery that uses technology to provide care beyond traditional healthcare settings. Let's jump right into the first question. Jennifer, why is remote patient monitoring so relevant in the healthcare industry today? Alex, it's a great question, and there's a few different answers, all of which I think are important. First of all, we continue to battle with certain conditions, either where there are no cures, you can imagine something like Parkinson's disease, or ubiquitous conditions, so broadly spread conditions, something like major depressive disorder, something that one in five Americans will experience during the course of their life. Um, and we can think about the challenges that we have in terms of developing therapies for those individuals, or in the case of major depressive disorder, matching individuals who need treatment with the right treatment at the right time. The promise that these high resolution, very sensitive, sensor generated measures offer that remote patient monitoring um, is the ability to start to pass out different um, digital phenotypes within those disease states in order that we can do just what I said, we can start to match the right patient with the right treatment and the right time. And in those broad disease states where there's very little that we can do to either ameliorate the symptoms of the disease or cure the disease. Think something like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. We're really hopeful that these new measures can start to advance the field. But I said there are a couple of reasons. So I think the second one is much more practical and things that all of us are experiencing day to day right now. As a result of one, our expectations of how we interact in the world, whether it's banking or education or even work, we're doing this through a video cast, um, or the simple needs of the healthcare system right now, or what we've experienced during the course of the pandemic, healthcare is fundamentally changing, and it has to. We have to start thinking about, just like you said, Alex, how can we start to monitor people's health outside of the walls of the clinic? How can we think about those patients who may have complex chronic diseases who may have episodic conditions with flare-ups, how can we monitor their well-being, their health, their performance under the care of clinicians without bringing them into the hospital every time? That's absolutely critical. One, to reduce patient burden. Two, because we have an exodus of highly trained clinicians from the healthcare workforce. We don't have enough doctors, nurses, and other clinicians to care for people in traditional ways. We have to start using these tools to extend their ability to care for more people. 
Finally, we can also provide better care. When we don't have to wait for a patient to turn up sick at the doors of the clinic before we start to help them, when we can use remote patient, remote patient monitoring to get early signals when an individual in the community or a patient may be getting sick or going downhill, we can intervene and care for them before their outcomes become bad and frankly, before they become pricey. The promise of this remote patient monitoring is absolutely enormous. It can do all of these things, but only if we build with intent. And that's where I'm hoping we're going to go with our conversation today, Alex. Such such um, great insights, Jennifer, once again. And, you know, I think what's interesting, too, is just to kind of summarize at least a couple of key takeaways from my perspective is how broad this can be applied to different disease states. And then, um, you know, really kind of focusing on, you know, precision medicine and really kind of honing in on what that particular uh, patient needs. But then um, what's really important, too, is what you had mentioned is you know, helping with today's crisis around staffing shortages. Um, so that kind of leads me into the next question, really, and is, you know, remote patient monitoring is a very broad topic. Um, how would you define and just distinguish the various subcategories in this space? So it's, it's a really good question. And I think that, first of all, what we need to do is distinguish those tools that we might be able to go into a large big box store or go online or go to, you know, whoever your smartphone is, right, the, app, the, the appropriate app store and access those to support our own health and wellness. That's one category of product. And that has, you know, a different layer of evidence associated with it as compared to some of the remote patient monitoring tools that are in developed exclusively to be intended to be suitable for driving high quality clinical decision making. And so some of the information is useful. It's interesting to see trends in things like your activity, just for the purposes of wellness. But when we think about um, an individual who may have AFib, for example, or we might think about someone who is a full risk, or we might think about someone who um, maybe is uh, on a chemotherapy regimen, and we want to check that their health status is maintaining and they're not beginning to decompensate, the level of data and expectation that we have around the correctness and the applicability of those sorts of data is fundamentally different to what's available to the consumer to support their health. Sometimes I get frustrated, Alex, that there's this sort of line in the sand between consumer products and medical products. And the reason that happens is because it all comes down to evidence. Some of those consumer products perform brilliantly. If you were to hold them and some academics labs have to the standards of testing that we would apply to a medical device, they apply really well. But what it comes back to is this. Are you collecting data that's relevant to the question about the patient's health that you are trying to answer? Is that data trustworthy and is that data available? And that's what it comes down to, whether you are an individual trying to bolster your own health, improve your own sleep, reduce your own stress, or whether you are a clinician who is monitoring a patient out in the world to check that they are safe and healthy and that they don't have to come into the clinic. It really comes down to evidence. And why is evidence important? It's about trust. And I think that we have absolutely seen the need for this kind of measure. Now we need to build that trust that these decisions based on this data can be just as good as decisions made in the clinic. Um, and that's what we're driving towards. And that's a lot of the work that we do here at Dime. 
Excellent. Again, and, you know, a very common theme, right? Not only just in remote patient monitoring, but just across healthcare is the data and the accuracy and the, the trustworthiness of that data. So excellent points once again. Uh, another com- uh, question for you is really around, um, you know, here at Intel, we like to consider ourselves technical geeks. So I got to ask you a question around technology or a couple of them, at least. Uh, first one is, you know, from, you know, technical considerations, you know, what are some of those that are needed in order to deploy um, in, in the marketplace today? It's a really good question. There's not a single answer. It's a framework. There are multiple considerations, of course, but the answers are there. And going back to the conversation we were just having, Alex, about needing to prove out trust, about needing to earn trust. We do know exactly what we need to look for when we are deciding whether a product um, is trustworthy and fit for purpose for use as a remote patient monitoring tool. So first and foremost, um, I would always say that we need to start with, is the measure capturing or is the tool capturing what it claims to measure? Let's take something rudimentary like steps, just because we can all wrap our head around it. Is that underlying accelerometer in the measurement tool actually correctly measuring um, acceleration with respect to the gold standard gravity, right? That's the first bit. We refer to that as verification and our electrical engineering colleagues, our physicist colleagues have been verifying sensors at the bench for decades and decades. That is commoditized in other industries outside of healthcare. I'm sure many of your colleagues at Intel are more than capable of doing sort of excellent bench verification. Um, We just need to do a better job at collaborating and trusting those technical experts and relying on those specifications. So that's the bottom part of the tech stack, if you like. We're getting data off the board as a result of um, uh, the wearable technology or the sleep mat or the microphone or whatever it happens to be. And that's verified. We know it performs. The next part is taking that data that's coming off the board and actually turning it into something clinically interpretable. That's the moment where you're taking that triaxial accelerometry, right, that's come off your accelerometer and turning it into steps. That's something that our data science colleagues do in partnership with biomedical engineers. It really is saying that we've tested and tested and tested this, and we've done it in a context where regardless of body type, regardless of what your gait is, right? And there's always parameters and it might not be for everyone. And you do need to understand what's the intended use? Where is this effective? That when you say this is a step, it is indeed a step within a tolerable and fully disclosed level of variability. That's the analytical validation step. So we've verified our sensor. We've conducted analytical validation to say that um, that this particular uh, algorithm, that a step is indeed a step. Then the last piece of it is where it starts to become more relevant to medicine um, and clinical care. There's a step called clinical validation, which is where we actually say, great, so you're monitoring someone after a knee replacement and we put an accelerometer on them. What does good look like? We can throw data at people all day, but we need context for that data in order to be able to make high quality clinical decisions as a result. So if, for example, you discharge someone from the hospital after a knee replacement, you gave them an accelerometer, you asked them to wear it, and they are taking 200 steps a day. Is that good? You don't know. There's an awful lot of clinical research you need to do to contextualize that measure. If they start at 200 steps a day and we decide that's good because we have plenty of data, but two weeks later they're at 250, well, that's a nice percentage increase, but is it clinically meaningful? Is that where we need to go? 
that's the clinical validation step. And that's part of that evaluation stack to determine whether a measurement tool, the sensor, the algorithm, and the clinical decision it informs is fit for purpose. That's one part, Alex, of what I would describe as a five-part scale. And I'm not going to go into war and peace, but we also need to think about what's the security around that product, right? How, what's, what are the data rights, right? If you, um, is it compliant with all of the, the, the rules? Has the patient appropriately consented to these data? Um, does the patient have sort of rights over that data? The fourth piece is around usability and utility. You know, if the greatest tool in the world, but if no one can figure out how to charge it, you're not going to get any data. And then the last piece is economic, right? Can we actually afford this? The perfect tool can always be built, but can it be built at a price we can afford? So really, it's about the performance of the measure. But then there are fundamental considerations that have to go with it too, Alex. Again, all great points, Jennifer. I think, you know, one thing to just kind of summarize that I thought was really interesting is that interpretation of that data and being able to um, provide some of those tools and insights to um, clinicians, right? Because again, if you're just um, bombarding them or overloading them with data, uh, they're not going to be successful. So again, that interpretation is such a, such a really good um, insight. You're, that kind of, oh, go ahead. You're exactly right, Alex. And I think there's a there's maybe an example that you know all of us can easily understand, right? So let's think about something like blood pressure. Right. If you knew your blood pressure, but didn't have any contextual information for that, nor did your clinician, how could you decide? But we know when someone has perhaps an alarmingly low blood pressure, mm -hmm. when they have a healthy blood pressure, when they might have, you know, pre-hypertension, when they do indeed have hypertension. Right. These are cut points that we know. Let's think about what that means in practice, though. You are 100 percent right that we cannot bombard clinicians with this information. That is not going to work. They are already absolutely stretched to the limits, doing fantastic work. The nice thing about that clinical validation step, the critical thing about it, is not only can a clinician themselves make good decisions, but we can actually start to automate some of those decisions. What do I mean? Let's say you did have a patient with hypertension, and let's say you sent them home with a cuffless blood pressure monitor, and you're getting regular feedback. What we say currently is, you know, we prescribe you some medication, we give you some dietary recommendations. Your very busy cardiologist or primary care doctor asks you to come back in in X number of months to check. We can now say, we're going to monitor you. We hope you do really well. If you don't, we're going to give you a call and we're going to troubleshoot. And if you have to come back in, you will. That fundamentally changes the way we care for people and it allows us to use a whole care team. And it should reassure the patient as well that even if a doctor isn't checking that data every single day, because we deeply understand and trust that data in context, we can automate some of those processes. And many more people can come under the care of the same family practitioner of which there is a shortage or the same uh, cardiologist of which there is a shortage. That's what I get excited about. Yes, and what's interesting too is um, how you emphasize automation. And that really leads into uh, my next question about artificial intelligence. And how do you see, or you know, what role do you see artificial intelligence playing in um, remote patient monitoring? Maybe um, talk about some of the sweet spots uh, for IA in this space. It's one of those things where the applications are potentially limitless, but at the same time, let's actually focus. This is a powerful tool in the toolbox. We have volumes of data that we've never had access to. This, these high velocity flows of data create enormous opportunity. 
we also have really pressing challenges in the healthcare environment. So how can we think about the greatest challenges that are currently amenable to using AI? I think the first one is to start to look at um, the ability to identify within sort of um, large population level data sets, particular phenotypes. So I spoke about this right at the top of our conversation. Can we actually look at these data and maybe we might be doing a, something as simple as simply counting step count, right? But what AI might be able to tell us if we p deliver the right data, let's go back to our example, that knee replacement patient, that some patients do really well. And for whatever reason, some patients end up having a fall and an injury and come back into the hospital within four weeks. It might be that right now we have no idea what the difference are between those patients who fall and those patients who don't. As we amass this data, AI may be able to say, gosh, there are markers about gait, um, maybe postural sway, like how much someone's limping as they're walking with that new knee. By the way, this is a completely hypothetical example, but I think it's quite good because we can all relate to it. Um, that actually gives us a signal that this individual is at much greater risk, right? That allows early intervention and that allows us to prevent that fall, perhaps that replacement knee, like that secondary knee replacement, perhaps a head injury loss of confidence, all of those things from happening and a readmission. That's an excellent outcome, both for the patient and for a system that needs to be much more efficient and needs to start reducing costs. It's starting to really mine these kind of data flows, these high resolution data flows that we've never been able to capture about an individual's life, right? We can think about all of the data that probably our smartphones are constantly recording, whether we permit them to or not, right? We've already started to see really exciting data about how your voice can predict neurodegeneration, right? These are the sorts of things, if we intervene early, because AI has given us signals in the data, can dramatically change health outcomes and improve health economics. It's really exciting. And that's where we've got to start. Well, one point, again, I'd like to emphasize too, that, um, you know, you put so well, is that you know, at Intel, we like to call AI for, at least in healthcare, when it's applied in healthcare, assisted intelligence. And all of those examples were around it, you know, how can you assist clinicians in terms of identifying something earlier in the process? And again, you know, being able to use that data, interpret that data, um, and allow the clinician and assist the clinicians in that, I think um, is re really, really relevant in this space. And I think you may... A really great point, Alex. And I think that this is a fundamental, in some cases, misconception. In other cases, I think there may be some technology companies that are pursuing a suboptimal business model, which is the goal here is not to say, you know, now your clinician is going to be an algorithm. That's simply not the case. It's this idea of how can we use these new data flows, whether it's from a sensor or other sources, and the computing power we have in this day and age to get earlier signals and to better inform sort of clinicians of impending risks of how a patient is doing so that you can receive the best and the most fit for purpose and the most personalized care available, and that we can take those precious clinician resources that we have and allow them to be practicing at the top of their license. So i.e. doing the really hard bits of their clinical care that only a physician um, or a pharmacist or a, a PA, for example, can do 
that's that's the secret here. It's not that we're trying to replace all of the clinicians or replace that relationship. We're trying to augment it. And I, I, I'm so glad you made that point. The, the other interesting thing, too, is, you know, when I talk to clinicians about new technology and so forth, one of the first things they always say is, please, no more dashboards, right? And I think the integration of these workflows um, into their existing, um, in, you know, whether it's be their dashboard or, you know, what have you, I think is also going to be very critical in terms of them embracing it and seeing the value of it. Absolutely. I mean, let's actually imagine like real talk. What does a day in the life look like for a clinician right now? First of all, they spend their entire day back to back seeing patients. Then at the end of the day, this is what it looks like. Maybe after they've gone home, after they've put their kids to bed, this is what they're doing. First of all, they're finishing their charting. Second of all, they're responding to all of the queries they have async in the patient portal. Are we really saying that on top of all of that, on the end of your average day, we then need them to flick through every single one of their patients' dashboards under their care? To your point, this is where AI gets powerful. That should be a curated list. That there should be, you know, all of this remote monitoring data that's flowing into the clinic. There should be some people who are flagged as they are doing great. We don't need to do anything about them at all. You might decide to do some engagement protocols with texts, with, you know, other kinds of outreach, not from a highly trained clinical professional, but saying you're doing great, good job, whatever that looks like. Then there's another tranche, which is, okay, we're starting to see trends in data And maybe that goes to a nurse, for example. Maybe that goes to another member of the care team who can give them a call and find out what's going on. Either give them some advice there and then so that they can get those numbers back to where they need to be or make a triage decision that they need to come in. And then there's perhaps that more complicated data that does get flagged for the physician's review. But that should be a very small number. And to your point, that's the only way the only way we can introduce this in a way that's not going to make the average day in the lives of our clinical colleagues even worse. Perfect. And I think, you know, we, one of the things that we haven't discussed yet that we always need to is around cost. And, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, some of the challenges in terms of transformation, um, you know, in the hospital space, you know, the, the big question is who's going to pay for this? Um, you've seen several hospitals integrate next generation remote patient monitoring solutions. What insights do you have to offer, you know, companies deploying solutions in this space with the considerate, with this consideration in mind? It's a really, really great question, Alex. And, you know, the team that we work with most closely in terms of healthcare providers are actually our colleagues at VA. So VA is the largest integrated healthcare system in the US. They have a phenomenal um, innovation team. They deliver world-class care to 9 million veterans. And what's interesting about that model, though it doesn't yet answer your question, is that that model, um, the VA is intended to care for a veteran from the moment they retire as a warfighter until they pass away. So they really are thinking about the long-term return on investment as they think about deploying these sorts of tools. They also, so now I'm going to get, so so they have that incentive to sort of pay for these sorts of things. They also have a very distributed um, sort of cohort of veterans, patients that they need to care for. They are wholly responsible for veterans in rural areas, for example. They have to overcome, just like every other healthcare system, the maldistribution between 
you know, specialist clinicians and the patients who need them most. And so because they have experience in other areas, they've been able to make that connection. They've been able to stop issues escalating, even for rural patients, for example. And so it returns to them in total cost of care. And where we're really starting to see the early movers is where there's either some risk sharing in the payment models um, or where um, it's an integrated healthcare system. The other place and the other uh, area, Alex, whereas, you know, we do a lot of work is in this area of virtual first care provision, right, where actually the model is, you know, avoiding brick and mortar until it becomes, you know, clinically necessary. Um, that actually patients are opting in to say, I want to, I want to receive all of my care virtually as far as that is safe and effective. And that's the other place where we really do see the payment incentives in place because they're often paid differently, um, for this remote patient monitoring. And it's an absolute cornerstone of effective virtual first care. But I would say it's those integrated healthcare systems, anyone who has any kind of risk sharing model and also virtual first care providers that are leading the way here. Well, I think what's also an interesting point is how you kind of broke it down with, um, you know, within the healthcare system and then also when it's um, delivered within the home as well. And, you know, um, some of those different areas that are there in order to um, reimburse and so forth, depending on the environment, which is very important. All right. Um, you know, I'd like to wrap it up with just one final question, um, you know, and, you know, this is more a little bit more um, looking in the future, but, you know, in your opinion, what does the future have in store for remote patient monitoring? I'm going to give you an example, and I'm also going to share an exciting new initiative that we're launching today. Um, today, we are launching a pre-competitive collaborative, um, Alex, to develop a core digital measure set around physical activity. Mm-hmm. Why do I start there when you ask me what's going on in the future? Um, things like gait speed, step count, these have been considered to be the sixth vital sign or the applied vital sign. This is an ability for us to predict and to care for in real time patients and individuals in ways we've never been able to before. I'm very excited to have these groups at the table as Dime hosts another pre-competitive collaboration to develop the most necessary and most valuable digital measures for use in remote patient monitoring. So excited to share that with you today. And our hope for this project and all of our projects, Alex, is um, and the field itself, is that we actually redefine what it means to care for patients. As I said earlier, the goal for remote patient monitoring and especially focusing in areas like physical activity, sleep, that we know are fundamental to health writ large, that we can start understanding these flows of data, that we can have trust in these flows of data to the point that healthcare stops being sick care. We aren't waiting for people to present sick at the door of the clinic any longer. We are able to use this remote patient monitoring to identify sickness or deterioration as soon as possible. And we can focus on caring for individuals' health. We can focus on good healthcare being, keeping them out of the clinic. And we can make sure that where there is unmet need for good you know, um, high resolution, highly informative measures of someone's health status that we can start to make progress in these different areas. So we are very, very optimistic about this. We believe the technology is there. We just need to figure out how to put it to work in the clinical environment for the betterment of the patients that our industry serves and all of those hardworking clinicians and researchers. That's perfect. And, and like you said, what I think what's so exciting about it, like you'd mentioned, the technology is there. 
it's really focusing on those, the integration and the deployment. And then, you know, one of the things that I get excited about um, in healthcare too is, uh, and this is a space that I think is a perfect example that could benefit from this, but you start looking um, at future technologies, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality and how that could um, enhance this care as well, um, not only for the doctor, but the patient. Um, so, you know, for me, I think it, you know, it, it's endless in terms of the possibilities. Um, but what's most exciting about this is, you know, ultimately it's really geared towards impacting the, the patient's um, outcomes. Absolutely. And I love that virtual reality example as well. Perhaps we can have a chat about that sometime soon, Alex. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, you know, I'd like to wrap it up again. Um, you know, great conversation points. And once again, Jennifer, um, you know, thank you for being on the podcast. I always enjoy having these conversations with you. They're just so, um, you know, meaningful and, and very insightful. Um, how does someone get in contact with you? That is a great question. And I really hope that people listening in do decide to get in touch. So, um, Alex, we are at uh, dimesociety.org. Um, we have this thriving community of experts who share our mission to harness the power of these technologies to improve lives. All of our resources are also open access. We have educational programs. Um, and we also do great work, too, that we publicize with partners, with our partners like Intel. So I would ask folks to come to the Dime website there are plenty of ways that you can find to contact us. We have a thriving Slack community where you can contact not only me directly, but also the thousands of members of our community. We have a newsletter. We have office hours where you can drop in and ask specific questions. And then, as I said, all of our resources and opportunities to get involved in future collaborative efforts. I mentioned our pre-competitive collaboration um, to develop a core digital measure set and physical activity that's launching today. If you want to be part of projects like that in the future, all of that information is available on the Dime website. And Alex, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share that. And thank you once again, Jennifer, for, uh, for being here today. I want to thank our audience for tuning into Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. It's brought to you by the Network and Edge Solutions Group. To hear the latest thought leadership from Intel, subscribe to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge to stay up to date with every new episode. Thank you.